Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Ooh, we got a snitty game of chicken going on. Ooh, girl. Ooh, it's getting spicy. Snitty is a wonderful snitty word. Snitty is an awesome uh, word. He's going to use it all the time. Yep. Uh, it's just so passive-aggressive. Which <laughs> is apparently how our government runs now. It's just passive aggressiveness. It's very effective that way. Yeah, sounds like a lot of shit's getting done. Uh, hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hi. Hi. Uh, before we get started, uh, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, things you want us to talk about, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Um, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. The podcast itself, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Um, and then, is that all the normal stuff? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Predict It. Uh, for uh, new listeners or returning listeners, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predict It, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics. Excuse me. Um, it's very bubbly today. Uh, uh, you can buy and uh, sell shares in future political events. Um, we're definitely using it for the uh, Democratic presidential candidates, uh, seeing who's kind of leading in the polls, where people are putting their money, who people think uh, are going to come out on top. Impeachment. Well, impeachment. Mm -hmm. That's, that's. Yeah, that's, we'll get to that. Thing. Woo snitty. Um, what's great for our listeners, uh, when you open up a new account with uh, Predicted, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use on Predicted. Awesome. Uh, all you have to do is use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and you'll get your free money to use on Predicted. That's good. Check it out. Before we get started, a uh, real quick thing. We just put a poll out on Twitter. We're contemplating doing uh, a live event, maybe several live events, uh, around Chicago in the near future. Uh, we're kind of gauging uh, what our listeners, if you guys would be interested in attending. Uh, so check us, check out that poll on Twitter. Uh, like I said at the beginning, we're just uh, Barstool Paul on Twitter. Um, so vote yes on that. Because if you put no, it means you also hate puppies. And it's very blatant in that poll. So make the right choice. Don't hate puppies. <laughs> Um, lots of stuff going on this week, but we have another another campaign corner update with with Dr. Phil Barker. Phil's campaign corner. <laughs> Phil, who did you hang? Who? What? Which presidential campaign candidate did you hang out with this week? Well, it was a slow week this week, uh, as opposed to the, <laughs> as opposed to the previous week when we had four people on campus. We just had one this past week. Uh, yeah, John Hickenlooper was was um, around, and I I think I um. 
I realized as I was talking to people about John Hickenlooper coming that most people don't know who that is, which surprised me, I guess. So he was the the mayor of Denver when when Bill and I were in grad school in Colorado. So he's familiar to me. Uh, and I think I have a little bit of a soft spot for yeah. him because of that, because I, I thought he was a he. I thought he was a good mayor. Went on to be, I think, a, a good governor. Well, and he before uh, he was mayor, he was he opened one of the first brew pubs in in the country, right? I mean, so he was yeah. a beer guy, then became the mayor. Yeah. He should be yeah. president. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he talked a little bit about that, about how it, when he started, you know, he he was at the front of the sort of revitalization of Lodo, the lower downtown area of Denver as well. It really, I mean, interesting guy with an interesting, interesting life. So yeah, he was on campus um, and, you know, uh, pretty low key. Um, he, it was a relatively small event. Uh, I, you know, last week I talked about, uh, uh, not about um, issues or anything, but just about, you know, what was the feel I got from the campaign. And, um, and uh, it was, you know, very, very, sort of low-key and casual but um uh i they i liked them like i wanted to go have a beer with his campaign mm-hmm. people they were they were near the top as far as like like likeability and and kindness and not <laughs> it he he came he spent time on campus before he did his event uh, meeting with students and with local business leaders talking about uh the important like jobs training and and business issues and um yeah, he he was. Uh, the, I'll be interested to see how he does. I I don't know if he'll if he'll how much traction he'll be able to get, especially in he comes across as a pragmatist, and I don't know if this is the era for a pragmatist. I, I just see people who are you know angry and want something really strong. But having said that, I was I was talking before we came on the air. The stuff he said. Uh, really stuck with me in a lot of ways. Like I find myself kind of thinking back to it and it was partly what he said, but it was more, I I said to one of his staffers afterwards, he talks different than the other candidates. He talked, um, I I kept thinking of uh, Peter Rice, uh, the guy who we had on a year and a half ago. Yeah, the author, yeah. Making arguments to to conservative, or making liberal arguments with sort of conservative um, uh, points. And he did a lot of that, like a lot of practical, he talked about immigration and had a very progressive stance. Um, he's very pro-immigration. He's very critical of, of uh, the Trump administration. But his argument, the reason for it, had to do with um, jobs, low unemployment, that we have this you know, sort of record low unemployment. And you know, in Colorado, fruits rotting in the fields because they don't have enough labor. And if you deport 10 million people, when there's already not enough people to fill the jobs, it's going to destroy our economy. And you know, made this very kind of practical argument, did similar stuff with environmentalism. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. He talked in a different way than the other candidates. And, and um, I think in a different era, it would have been really effective. I'm not saying it can't be effective. I, I'll be interested to see as he moves forward if, if he gets traction with that approach. I don't like that. Uh, I need uh, extremists who appeal to my <laughs> lizard brain only. <laughs> he is, no, thank he, you. You're, you're right. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's much kind of a centrist, right? A throwback compared to some of the other candidates. But he's a centrist who's pushing for what would be considered liberal issues, the environment and yep. immigration, but from a, a business savvy perspective. And it yep. is, it's very interesting to hear him talk because he doesn't sound like Bernie Sanders. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of issues where I think Democrats, progressive Democrats, uh, should like the the proposals that he's putting out there. He's not Elizabeth Warren. It's a different perspective. Right. Uh, but I'm I'm engaged by his ideas. And he, yeah, in in the '80s, I think he would have been very very appealing both to Democrats and to Republicans. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah, that's good. This is good insight, Phil. 
We're gonna we're gonna I'm I'm determined to get him on the podcast. Oh. He likes beer, he likes politics. We're gonna we're gonna do it. You said yeah. he wanted to talk like religious nationalism with you. He did. He oh I forgot about that. Like, of all the candidates, this is maybe this is why I liked him. Before I even <laughs> met him, he had read up on me. So he knew who I was and wanted to talk with me about my research and religious nationalism and so that was you know That's great. he obviously has good taste. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <Ooh. laughs> That was snitty, Bill. Oh, that was snitty. <laughs> Speaking of snitty, <laughs> all right. So we got to we got to. So the battle over the Mueller report begins. So the investigation may be over, um, but the Mueller report, Nick, it's still very much at center stage. So last week we learned that Robert Mueller sent Attorney General William Barr a letter, actually a couple letters, expressing his team's concern that the Attorney General's letter did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of his office's work and conclusion. Barr called the letter a bit snitty uh, and stood by his conclusions. <laughs> Since then, much has transpired, including the Attorney General refusing to testify in front of the House, the House Judiciary Committee announcing uh, a vote and then voting uh, to recommend that he be held in contempt of Congress. We also learned that Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin had a 90-minute phone call in which they discussed the Mueller report. Additionally, Liberty University President Jerry Farwell Jr. Uh, called Trump's first term to be extended by two years as payback, quote, for time stolen by this corrupt failed coup. Love it. Oh. Jerry Falwell, who's in the news for other reasons. As well. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, Trump promptly retweeted Falwell, uh, his tweet raising speculation of whether Trump will in fact leave office. Uh, later in the week, the administration said he was just kidding. He's just he's just kidding. He's not he's not going to stick around. On Monday, more than 700, I think the number is now 720, former federal prosecutors who worked in both Republican and Democratic administrations signed on to a statement asserting special counsel Robert Mueller's findings would have produced obstruction charges against President Trump if he were not president. Then yesterday, the White House announced it will be invoking executive privilege to prevent uh, White House counsel Don McGahn and likely anyone else from providing documents or testimony to Congress. That's a lot. Phil, the battle lines have been drawn. Where, where do you want to start? There's so much that There's we can do. So oh, this, this is going to be good, Nick. It's going to be good. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, I guess uh, just some thoughts to, to, to start us off. I, the first is this big picture idea that I keep coming back to where it feels like the, the dam that is in place um, that the Trump administration is desperately putting their fingers in holes to stop the it, it just feels like it's crumbling right now. I, there, I mean, I, I think if you followed the news or listened to, I don't, I, the news could give this impression that the Trump administration is be is successful or has been successful in the last week at stopping stuff by you know by by. Uh, um, uh, citing executive privilege today, they cited. I don't know if you saw this. They they uh, cited executive privilege over the entire Mueller report and all the underlying documents. That was the so yeah. so the the Congress can't have it. Um, you you they can't. Re I mean, they're going to do it. They're going to try it, but they can't really do that. So we can talk about that yeah. about how you can't cite executive privilege after you've already like allowed people to talk to the prosecutor about stuff. But that's so interesting. Um, yeah, we got that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's a whole other issue. Uh, but I think that between that, between you know uh, the the refusal to comply with the the demands for um, Trump's taxes, uh, there's a lot of stuff where where the Trump administration is you know pushing back hard. And the initial perception, I think, could be that they're so far they've been somewhat effective. 
Um, but it feels like these these issues are coming from all directions now. The with whether it's you know stuff related to the Mueller report, whether it's related to Trump's taxes, whether it's I mean all sorts of things. And um, they seem to be I, I I don't know I think I think it's it's going to all explode pretty soon. <laughs> They're certainly um, on the defensive on a whole lot of issues, and that's that's not a good place for an administration to be. Is constantly saying no, and not just a counter argument, but no, you can't look at that. This person can't testify. Those documents can't be released. That's not a position of strength. Right. Well, and I saw that like uh, the taxes issue. Um, I saw a poll today that said that it's close to it's not quite, but it's close to 70 percent of Americans um, basically believe that he's hiding something. Right. That it should be mm-hmm. that the public should get to see it, that there's you know, that, that this he's on the wrong side of that of that issue. No, no, no. He's just under uh, audit. He's just being audited. It's, it's right, all right. as soon as the audit is wrapped up, this will all come out. <laughs> I also think back to I, I, I also think back to a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about impeachment and whether that should be the next step forward. Um, and, and I, 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 the, the Democrats, there are certainly lots of Democrats who are pushing for that, but, but Pelosi's kind of hesitancy on that and, and some others, I think that's where, uh, you know, we talked or I talked when we, a couple of weeks ago about that being the right thing to do, whether it was politically savvy or not. But I think what this is showing is that it is the politically savvy thing to do as well, because as you start to do these investigations, he's going to freak out and he's mm-hmm. going to act out and he's going to make it worse. So, you know, there are lots of people who have alleged that just this week in his responses, he has essentially obstructed justice in the open again by tweeting about uh, Mueller and how he shouldn't testify and all sorts of other stuff. So um, I, I think that's where, you know, strategically it it it, it makes sense. But I, I just have the sense that that it's it's that it it's not going well, um, that it's 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 really falling apart for him. There's, there's been a shift. Nick, what's your... I, I, he's slippery, man. He's real, <laughs> yeah, real slippery. Yeah. And as many times as... I feel like we constantly are saying, you know, this... Uh, we're getting to a breaking point. Something's going to change, and nothing nothing changes. Um, as much as I, I think that this could potentially be a turning point, just because it, it does seem like a, a confluence of a lot of different angles that he's having to contend with, I don't know, man. It's it. I I'm I'm not. I I will never be convinced at this point that there is one particular instance that will break this administration because they always find a way, or people give up and move on to something else too quickly. In terms of impeachment, I tend to agree with you, Phil. I think I was of the mind that going for impeachment with a fractured party who isn't really necessarily behind it was not a strategically sound move to make. As more and more information comes out. I think it's, I, I, again, you, you talked about it and we talked about it previously, that it's, it's their job to do this. Your, your job is oversight, and impeachment is not a one-and-done thing. Start the investigation process, gather more information, and if you think that there is something to this, he's going to slip up. I, I, I just, you know, as much as we can talk about the individual aspects over the past week that have got us here, in the end it all comes back to what the Democrats are willing to do and put on the line politically Mm -hmm. in terms of impeachment. And I don't think that they're there yet. If they miss this opportunity, which I think it's going to be a very narrow window, I I don't know. It's going, I think, from an electability and cohesiveness standpoint, they're going to be in trouble if they don't 
solidify their stance very soon. Well, and I, I, Trump has a really powerful ally in William Barr right now. For me, he's the more fa- he's the one of the most fascinating characters because yeah. I, I think you're right, Phil. We've drifted to a point where the evidence has shifted against Trump, and there's more and more potential evidence that could be really damning. But we forget that that William Barr was the first one to summarize, although he said it wasn't a summary, of the Mueller report. He gave that press conference beforehand, and he was able to frame this as no collusion and no obstruction of justice. And so that slowly, you know, we've been, they've been picking away at that. But But he is such a fascinating character for the role that he is playing and continuing to play. You know, Nick, after, so we taped last week, and like as soon as we were done taping. It always happens. Yeah, the letter came out. And, you know, the fact that Robert Mueller sent two letters uh, to, to, to Barr saying, we do not agree with your summaries. We think they're, you know, what it was exact words, that they're, uh, they're not fully capturing the context, nature, and subs. This is a big deal. Robert Mueller could have called him and said, "Hey, hey, Bill, this is this is a little troubling." But well, didn't didn't he call him? I thought they I thought he tried to call him. Or he Bill Barr call him called him back. So so Mueller sends after the second letter. Then uh, Barr calls Mueller back and goes, "You know, hey, Bob, what's going on?" Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that Robert Mueller writes these letters, this isn't just a little memo that he's sending out. I mean, he is screaming this at him, and he wants it done in the permanent record. So there's this this huge gap now between. Barr and Mueller, which makes all of the evidence all the more fascinating, and, and particularly given that you know now the the data of like seven hundred prosecutors are saying that if this were not the president, we would absolutely be prosecuting it. It's just this really fascinating battle. But he is the president, and that's the yes. standard from the judi- the the um, office of legal counsel. Yeah, yeah. I, like sorry, that's that's the reality of the situation. In any other situation, yes, that yes. would be true. But this is unprecedented, so I, I, that argument doesn't necessarily hold water. No, you inter- go ahead. No, I, I, I think the, 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 the important part of that argument, though, or the, why that matters, I think, is uh, you're right that, that, you know, whether they would have prosecuted him if he were a private citizen is sort of a moot point. But I think that gets back to why Mueller is so pissed off, because he was the, his whole idea was this is because he can't be prosecuted. This is ground or this is he doesn't ever say it's grounds for it. This is. Uh, this falls in the arena of impeachment and Congress mm-hmm. needs to decide it, which is why he was so pissed that Barr basically said, no big deal and nobody needs to see the report. Yes. <laughs> right. Let me, let me just read you a bit from this letter from the 720 prosecutors and including a lot of high profile Republicans. It says, each of us believes that the conduct of the president described in the special counsel report would in the case of any other person not covered by the office of legal counsel uh, result in multiple felony charges for obstruction of justice. We emphasize that these are not matters of close professional judgment. I mean, that is, it's damning. And I don't know how many people are are aware of this, but this is a huge chunk of prosecutors across the country, federal prosecutors saying that if this guy wasn't president, Democrats and Republicans, he would be charged. And I know you're right, Nick, that it's it's different because he's the president. But that says something that if it wasn't for that, he would be charged with multiple crimes. Yes. Says a lot. A bunch of traitors. So many (laughs) traitors. If the standard for impeachment is, you know, so I think that's part of the other thing is that people are reluctant to go the route of impeachment if there's not uh, some like obvious crime. And I think that's what these people are, what these prosecutors are saying. This is an obvious crime, right? This is a crime. The president is committing a crime, and that is when impeachment is the proper recourse. Mm -hmm. So, what do you guys think of Barr? Because uh, for me, this week, 
you know, Barr is so different than most of Trump appointees. Like Trump usually appoints or has people around him like Cohen, Manafort, uh, what was the, the former Attorney General Whitaker. I mean, mm, these guys yeah. who are just toadies, right? Who are just sucking up to Trump. Bill William Barr is not that kind of guy, but. It's really fascinating when you've got a man. I mean, Barr is a man of integrity, somebody who's done something. He's supposed to be a man of principle. Suddenly, when you've got him defending Trump, and I think it's authentic, maybe for this sense of executive power, he's the perfect ally for Trump. He's the perfect defender because you can't just say this is another, you know, uh, Trump toady. He's somebody who has legitimacy. So when mm -hmm. somebody with that kind of legitimacy is defending Trump, it goes a long ways. Mm -hmm. I, he was someone who had legitimacy. <laughs> I, that, I think that's the amazing thing, because you're, yeah. you're right. He was someone who was taken seriously in Washington. So, I, you know, people there are people who would disagree with your statement that he was a man of integrity and, and, <laughs> and whatnot. I, you know, I'm not saying, yeah. you know, it, it's he was involved in Iran-Contra and all sorts of other sure. stuff. So he, he certainly but he had principles. Right? He was a legitimate was this, political player. Was, yeah. yeah, he yeah. was a serious political player who had been in D.C. for a long time. People took him seriously even if they didn't like him or yeah. even if they disagreed with him. And he has seemingly thrown all that away in a, in a way that's surprising to me because the arguments he's making aren't, you know, uh, I think of like John Yu, who was in the Bush administration, yes. who was the yes. attorney in the Bush administration, incredibly smart. I disagree. And most legal scholars disagreed with his interpretation of things. But he was very direct about his view that presidential power meant that George Bush could do X, Y and Z. Barr's not making those arguments. He's not up there saying that the president is that presidential power means he can do this. He's he is uh, he's playing more. It's not even he doesn't even seem like the president's attorney. He's like he's playing a a a, a press, press secretary. secretary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's I would say it's it's couched. It's you're right. He's not as legalistic as John Yu was, but it's couched in this this idea of the executive and the president as being having unlimited power so it's similar mm -hmm. to you that way his whole argument about that trump can't obstruct justice because there was no uh foundation crime right so he said because there was no crime what he's trying to do is just defend himself i totally disagree with him but he's making this argument this legal argument mm -hmm. that the president it really is it's such an expansive view that the president could never commit obstruction of justice if there was not <laughs> a founding crime mm -hmm. but is, is he arguing that that only applies to the president because I, yes. there, there are a lot of people so. who are basically making the argument that you can't obstruct justice if there's not a crime underneath it which is there's a legal opinion but it's not a common one right, right. That, that right. it is well understood that you don't there doesn't have to be an underlying crime for you to commit obstruction of justice um, you can just be stupid or self-interested or yes. any number of other reasons you I think could, that's you could the part that yeah. there, there are people you know in politics who are clearly smart and clearly principled and then you hear them making these arguments that you know that they can't actually like believe right they're mm -hmm. doing it they've like sold their like intellectual honesty for some political gain and I, he just he didn't strike me prior to this as the type of person who would do that and then then that's what this week looked like yeah. i mean the 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 testimony was really I mean, it was interesting. I didn't watch all of it, but watching some of it, it, it was, you know, it felt it felt like a press yeah. secretary, right? Like mm -hmm. the question about where they were asking, he was asked, have you, did anyone in the, 
um, administration or has, has the president or anyone close to him asked you to investigate or to open an investigation into uh, people? Did you see that bit? Yeah. And he, he like hemmed and hawed and what does it mean to suggest? Right. And, right. Like, yes. It's just bullshit. But he's right? smart like, enough where right. you know that if it was your if your child was doing that to you, answering questions right. in such a way, you'd be like, come on now, you're, you're clearly lying or not being honest. Right. But in the legal world, he has not likely committed perjury. Right. But that's right. not the same thing as being forthright and answering these questions right. in an honest way. Mm-hmm. It's revealing. How, how much does that matter? Because, I mean, this is so this is where I, I come back to this debate a lot, which is um, I think Trump has sort of exposed a lot of the kind of hypocrisy or the assumptions that we have about American politics that aren't, you know, that make us feel good, but, but aren't actually there. But, you know, the attorney general is supposed to be this essentially, uh, you know, impartial. They are the the top law enforcement officer. Um, you know, the, this is, you know, justice with a blindfold on, right? They're not supposed to take sides. They are there to be an arbiter. Um, and to assume that attorneys general in the past have been perfectly unbiased, it would be naive, right? But this is this is more extreme than what you've seen. And like to to basically, what he was doing looked a lot more like the president's attorney than the attorney general, right? And and so I I, I go back and forth between thinking that this is maybe a more extreme version of the way it always is, and thinking no, this is something really really different, right? And this is this is. Um, you know, to to sort of step that far away from from being, or at least pretending to be a, a you know an an unbiased uh, arbiter of justice. I, I don't know. I mean, what do you? I, I don't even know what the question is that comes with that. I that that debate yeah. is something that comes up in my head about how how big of a deal it is. I I I, hmm. I mean, I think it's a a big deal from a from a perception standpoint. Um, looking as much as we've talked about um, contentious political flare-ups over, you know, any of the issues that we've talked about over the past year or two years at this point. This seemed to be the most uh, just hyper-partisan thing that I I think I have ever seen. I, I rarely, rarely look at Twitter when these things happen. And it was the same... It was two people two tweets right next to each other talking about the exact same thing and having the complete opposite viewpoint about what's going on and you know who was taking who to task and you know who did well and it was it's it's terrible and 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 i i think you you're alluding to this but having these you know whether you're talking about uh the attorney general or any political appointee they shouldn't be politically appointed um you're right. This is supposed to be a a a, a, a judicial position that is supposed to be a, an impartial arbiter with all of these scenarios. They should never have any sort of attachment to any administration. And realistically, none of these hearings should be televised either to take that bone away from um, uh, from the House and the Senate. I, I I just I don't know how we're ever how we're ever going to get away with it or get away from it uh, at this point. It seems... I think that speaks to the the long-term threat that this, or the impact of this, of of Barr's behavior. Because it's one thing for one of Trump's, like, you know, political appointees who clearly is, is just sucking up to Trump. And you say, well, he's a scumbag. Let's move on. But what Barr is doing is he's framing this in a 
legal way that will have impacts on the balance of power. It undermines the long, long-term long legitimacy of the Department of Justice and the position of the Attorney General. I, I think it's a, it's a big deal, and it bothers me more than some of the just corrupt people in the Trump administration, where you can say it's 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 their fault, they're just bad people, but this speaks to institutional decay. Uh, so I, I think it's a it's a really big deal mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, so Michael Gerson, who's a former George W. Bush speechwriter, who just he's not a Trump fan at all, but he wrote a piece this week after Barr testified, and he said that the difference from Barr and all other of of sort of Trump's toadies is that. Barr licks Trump's boots out of principle, and that's really, really dangerous, right? And I, I think there's some truth to that, that it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's out of this idea that the, there should be no checks on the president. Uh, in that way, it's similar to John Yu, but um, yeah, I, I, was, I was disturbed by it. Do you, I, there were lots of people, I, I was a, a little bit surprised, actually, um, at the number of people who reacted so strongly to bar there were a, mm-hmm. a lot of people um really I, people from kind of all walks of life politicians media people people even conservative you know fox, people who and fox news been, yeah who but a lot of people who were uh reacting strongly and even so far as to say that bar, bar you know can't do this job anymore that the idea of being impartial or that he that and and people who were calling for impeachment of him, right? Not a whole lot of that, but a lot of people calling for him to be, uh, that he needed to resign. I, I think I was a little surprised by, I don't know why I was surprised by that. I, I guess because I've sort of gotten used to the uh, the usual figures who, who react strongly, but this seemed like a bigger group of people. I, do you think, can he... I don't, I don't imagine he's going anywhere, but um, is, that, is their argument valid? Do you think he should step down? Uh, no, I don't think he... If he had committed perjury, I think he would have to step down. What he did is walk very close to that line and then just tiptoe along it. And he was, mm-hmm. you know, and avoid that, right? So it's it's hard to say. Now, was it unethical behavior? Yes, I think it was my view of the way the Constitution is written and how law should be, you know, protected. He didn't do what I think he should do. But that it's hard to... It's, it would... An impeachment case would it would be hard to prosecute him for that, don't you think? Yeah, but uh, if we're talking about stepping down or that he should go, I, like I, I hate that we're at a point where the argument is yes, he did like he violated all sorts of ethical standards. He's a slime ball, but he didn't technically violate yeah. the law. And so, and and he's not just you know this isn't Michael Cohen, right? This yeah. isn't the president's fixer. This is this is uh, the top the attorney law general, enforcement right? official the idea in the country, of, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the 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 point the 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 illustrative point that kind of gets at this is the question that he was asked in the hearings about whether or not I don't I wish I had the wording I should have looked it up about whether or not um, the in, people in the independent in the independent councils uh, or the the um, the special counsel yeah, special this counsel's is, office the reports had, were out the news reports were out saying yeah. that they were concerned they asked him this question do you so know anything the, about in this, previous, this yeah hmm. right in his previous testimony before congress he was asked have you been contacted by uh or yeah do you know of people in the in the special counsel's office who are upset with your interpretation or whatever and he said no 
Um, well, it turns out that he had a letter from the from the special counsel himself saying, "I'm I'm pissed at the way you've done yeah. this." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the 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 legal the people who I you know who I follow who I have a lot of respect for with legal opinions have. Uh, you know, a lot of people have said that was perjury, um, but the legal, you know, the the sort of technical approach is that his response was that when he was asked about that, the question was people in the special prosecutor's office. And I think the question was, do you know why they're upset? You know, do you know anything about why they might be upset? Kind of asking him to speculate on what they might be thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it, it was it was and, and, and his response was essentially, I, I don't know who in the special counsel, like, I don't know how many people in the special counsel's office were upset. And so technically it wasn't a lie. So technically it wasn't perjury, but it was over the top misleading. Right. Mm-hmm. It was very obviously misleading. And so that kind of gets at this core question about whether or not, you know, he hasn't violated the law necessarily. But. If you're talking about ethics and honesty and transparency and all these other things that we expect from the country's chief law enforcement officer, um, then it seems like that should absolutely matter. It felt like an answer if you were giving a deposition where you knew you could go to jail if you released certain information. You would answer only the very specific question you've been asked. Uh, and that would be considered success. But in this broader picture of what your job as the top law enforcement officer for the country, that that felt like there's some inconsistency right. with that. Like that. The first answer he gave was not, I am answerable to the president, but also to Congress in their oversight duties. I represent the people. And so when Congress asks me, are people in the special counsel's office upset? The, the the true answer is to say yes i have reason to believe people are upset yeah. that's the honest yeah. response when <laughs> right. you say when you say no you're you're covering something up right you have you have an as he is not donald trump he's not trying to protect himself right he is protecting someone else that's where it gets it just gets murky and weird and i see mm. that's where he he loses credibility so when he's testifying in the future it's again you have to parse mm-hmm. every single thing he says so you started phil by talking about uh it feels like the trump administration is sticking their fingers in the dam trying to hold the water mm-hmm. back it strikes me that some of what they're trying to do with these investigations i'm sorry with, uh, with uh, ignoring the subpoenas and executive privilege is to stall and delay everything yep. which yep. could be a good tactic because it, it's gonna nick you were talking earlier about how this is frustrating you're kind of getting tired of every day about this mm-hmm. Does the American public get exhausted with this? And so is that strategy of saying, oh, we'll go to court, knowing that we're probably going to lose. I think the the legal experts say that Trump's probably going to lose on his taxes. He's probably going to lose on the executive uh, privilege. All of these things, he doesn't have a strong argument. But if he can delay this for six months, tie this up in the court systems, is that not a form of victory? Of course, yeah. It's it's a it's a standard corporate America tactic, oh. and I think they're brilliant when it comes to that stuff. Uh, yeah, realistically, if this drags out for another two years, the American people are not going to put up with it, especially if shit doesn't get done. And shit's already not getting Nothing done. Nothing gets done. Yeah. Nothing is yeah. getting done. So I, I do think that there there is a breaking point that people just are will not be willing to go beyond and this is a long-term strategy of trump even going back to his business days he always sued people 
as a way of delaying and just you know eventually people get tired of it so this is he this is his comfort zone mm-hmm. and and but at the same time as we learned in the last 24 hours he's a terrible business person <laughs> yes. so it may not be a, it's only so a I, billion I, he lost phil i um i don't feel necessarily confident in this answer but there's part of me that thinks that uh that this might be the wrong strategy mm-hmm. that i think that dragging it I, I sort of wonder if he were to just turn over his taxes let every I mean I, again I don't know what's in there so maybe there's something really terrible in there that can't that's like worse than we imagined but if it's just he's not as rich as he claims he is I, that that as you drag it out and fight it over time people just start to assume that right so now if if you refuse for years to turn over your taxes and when Congress um, subpoenas those tax returns and you refuse that and you fight it legally and you do all this other stuff then people just start to and that's this this the the surveys that have started shifting that show that people just now assume that he's got something bad in his taxes that he's trying to hide i sort of wonder if he just turned it over if it would be like stories in this day and age in the trump era are so crazy that we have a crazy story in the next week there's some other crazy story and people have moved on and i, I wonder if it will backfire on him. I I keep thinking back to the Nixon administration in which they sort of fought this and fought this and it got dragged out and people were, you know, there were people who were sick of it. But as the investigations dragged out and sort of more information came around, you know, people have cited this week that the public opinion isn't for impeachment at this time. It wasn't for impeachment of Nixon early on either. But as these as more investigations dragged out and as Nixon fought it and tried to cover it up, that's what shifted public opinion. And I, I don't, I, now again, you know, if he turned over everything, maybe the case would be like, holy shit, this guy's got to go. Maybe it would be so over the top that they have to fight it. But I, I wonder if the fighting makes him look guilty anyway, that it, that they're, he's, he's defeating the purpose. And he's, he could do that across the board. He could do that, say, McGann, you testify. Here's the full unredacted Mueller report. Here are my taxes. Do it all at once a big dump and uh yeah then a week later in the Mueller report basically we talked about the Mueller report for a week or two and then we got tired of it mm-hmm. i i mean i i i still think that that delaying is is a better tactic and the reason why i think that is in terms of i don't think we're going to find anything in his taxes other than what people expect he lost a shitload of money he bankrupted several companies. He screwed people out of tremendous amounts of money. He used every tax uh, loophole available to him at the time. And he comes off like an arrogant, shitty, elitist, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Capitalist. corporate stooge. <laughs> yeah. um, right now, I think there's enough support from his base to keep the narrative that they've put in place going with a significant amount of support. Once it starts coming out that you've cheated people, significant amounts of people, um, construction workers, smaller companies, um, you know, independent contractors out of, you know, millions of dollars over several decades, that is not going to play well to the 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 core group of people that you need to keep you in office. And doing that if that comes out at any point, that remotely is. close yeah. to the election, he is fucked. Well, and he's even, so is it Deutsche Bank, you know, the German banks that loaned him money for years and years and years when nobody else would loan him money. He's also preventing them from sharing information, right? So at some point, why, like to your point, Phil, why is he being so aggressive about nobody can learn anything about this? It's not just it, privacy. It's There's probably something you're trying to hide. 
it feels like at this point it's going to come out, right? It's uh, it's going to come out at some point. Is the strategy for him just to delay it as long as he can in the hopes that he gets to the election and wins re-election? Could be. Yeah. You think of the Nixon strategy, just get through, get reelected, then mm-hmm. whatever happens, happens. Right. Oh, this is so interesting. We, we should talk. We're, we're over time. We should talk beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, what, what kind of stout you got today? Looks Looks like a good one. Yeah, so I'm drinking. Um, I, again, I've I've gone back to this bre- this brewery a number of times. This is um, the Schilling Beer Company out of Littleton, New Hampshire. They have a, a line of beers called Resilience, um, and uh, this is their Geppetto Milk Stout, uh, brewed with coffee. It says on there. Um, yeah, so I, uh, you know, before we came on, I was talking about how stouts. I I'm always unsure as I start drinking them, and then I always enjoy them more than I expect to. Um, and and this one is a good example of that. I, it's it was the one of the first few sips were really had a really strong coffee flavor. Um, it's not heavy, which is what I always that's the mistake I always get into. I always expect a stout to be heavy, and it's not heavy. It's got a strong coffee flavor in the first few tastes, but then as you get into it, it's nice and smooth. The coffee flavor kind of blends in nicely. Um, Maybe it's that I got really worked up about uh, about bar and impeachment, and I got to drinking, and so I was thinking about it last. But yeah, I mean, I, so I still wouldn't say that stouts are my favorite, right? If I'm going to get a beer, I'm still going to get an IPA or a lager or something like that. Uh, but as far as stouts go, this one was was pretty good. Good one, Nick. What are we having? Before we do that, yeah. um, did anybody think that William Barr looks like Danny DeVito in a wig, or is yes. that just me? No, I could see that. <laughs> I could see that. Go on, it's always sunny. That's him. Yeah, um, yeah we are having a, a couple different beers from uh, Off Color Brewing, which we've had uh, some of their stuff before. Uh, I am having a, a Troublesome, which is a wheat beer brewed with coriander. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of, I'm not I'm just not a wheat beer guy anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just it doesn't it doesn't do it for me. Um, you know, wheats I I kind of expect to have just kind of a, a light kind of creaminess to yeah. them uh this is very it's very tart uh it's very effervescent um and it seems like it has a, a tremendous amount of hops to it it almost it's almost ipa like huh. um with a little bit of it's just like sour or yeah tartness it's to it or? very okay it's, it's tart yeah. um yeah it just I, I i didn't necessarily know what to make of it um, it's a lot of it's a lot of conflicting things that I, I just wouldn't expect in a wheat beer. I think that's what they go. I, so I had a very very far, and I would say it's a similar thing. This is their Belgian style ale, and I think they just like lots of stuff in it to kind of confuse <laughs> your palate. Um, this one, I will say, of, of their beers, I liked this one better than some of their other ones because it, they're so eclectic. It's just you go into a beer assuming a beer should taste a certain way. And they're never going to give you that beer. They're mm. never going to give give you what you assume it should taste like. And fuckers, it throws it throws me off. So <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't mention in the beginning. We're going to talk about more Game of Thrones today. So yes. stay tuned for that. Oh yes, in about twenty minutes. All right, speed round, Nick. Ooh. Let's speed through these topics to get to Game of Thrones. Hell yeah. So. All right, so Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made a sudden unscheduled trip to Baghdad on Tuesday as an aircraft carrier and Air Force bombers headed to the Middle East amid speculation that Iran was uh, contemplating an attack on U.S. troops in the region. Both Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton have raised alarm about this new threat from Iran. 
Some have speculated that this is a classic diversionary theory of war uh, and that Trump is escalating tensions with Iran as a way to distract from his domestic problems. Yet recent reporting has also found that Trump has become frustrated with Bolton's unrelenting desire for military action and apparently has told friends that if Bolton had his way, he'd already be at war in multiple places, which is actually not that surprising. He still, he still thinks the Iraq war was a good idea. Then on Wednesday, Iran's president declared that the country would stop complying with two of its commitments under the Iran nuclear deal. President Rouhani said that Iran would begin to build up its stockpiles of low enrichment uranium and heavy water which is used in nuclear reactors. The action by Iran appears to be calibrated, uh, calibrated to force other members of the agreement to choose between Iran or the United States. Phil, this is some pretty serious developments. Uh, while, it, while it might be the case that nobody wants war, other than Bolton, uh, these steps have made the situation much, much, much more dangerous. What's, what's your read of this? I, uh, Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's a... Uh, I, so it's disconcerting. I can't quite figure out what to make of it all. Yeah. It, there, there's lots of weird stuff about this. It's weird that in all of the discussion of the, the deployment of aircraft carrier to the region, and it sounds like that was already maybe planned and it's been yeah. played up as if it's this move that we're making from a military um, approach, which would lead lend itself to this kind of, you know, diversionary theory of it. But it's also weird that the secretary, the acting secretary of defense wasn't involved in any of this. You had Pompeo, you had the national security advisor, you had all sorts of other people talking about it, but not the secretary of defense, which is, which is weird. Um, I, I, I tend to think that this is rhetoric, right? This is, this is Trump's rhetoric. This is how he acts. This is how he's, he's talked about Iran in the past. It's how he's talked about North Korea. Um, and then nothing really comes of it. But at the same time, this is not a new thing, right? He has talked about Iran for a long time. Before he was ever elected, he was critical of Obama's approach to Iran. Um, he has been, you know, aggressive towards Iran um, from the beginning. He even tweet. I don't know if you saw the tweet, the tweet that was going around from back when, uh, before when Obama was president, he famously tweeted something about how uh, Obama's going to go to war in Iran <laughs> to to, uh, to help shore up his reelection or something. Oh, like Trump that. said this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so people have been pointing to that, that this is like an idea that has occurred to him in the past. So part of, there's there's a part of me that wants to say, whatever, right? This is more Trump bluster. This is how he conducts foreign policy, and, and people have learned to not pay attention to the rhetoric. There's another part of me that thinks this is different, that this, is, this has been a point that he has come back to over and over again. It's not that long ago that the U.S. was talking that we were redeploying troops to be close to Iran. I mean, this has been um, a, a consistent point. And Bolton, right? I mean, we've talked about how the sort of adults in the room have kind of cleared out and it leaves Bolton in charge of things. I, I don't I, I'm not ready to take it super seriously, but I don't think it should be dismissed mm -hmm. yet. Yeah. Nick, what's your read of this? Um, I didn't really know what to think of it until the news came out about the, the nuclear deal yeah. uh, recently. Um, that kind of changes the dynamic of this whole scenario. Um, I'm, I'm of the general opinion that Bolton is batshit crazy. Mm. Um, but when, when this came out, and it seems like the Iranians are... they. It sounds desperate. They're trying to force the Europeans to pick up the slack uh, where uh, after the U.S. left the uh, the nuclear deal, and Europe doesn't seem to be responding in the way that they want. 
on top of the fact that being allied with the U.S. is probably a little bit more uh, important than dealing with the Iranian regime at, the, at, 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 at any moment, not only this moment. Um, so it seems like they're, they're grasping at straws. So in terms of, from a foreign policy perspective, I would assume that <clears throat> Bolton had intelligence on this prior to it happening. Uh, I, I think that it, as sloppy as this has been, the tactic kind of seems to be working. I, I mean, from, from an economic um, uh, destabilization standpoint, uh, and the U.S. putting additional sanctions on Iran, uh, and forcing it to kind of come to terms with its actions in um, in the Middle East and, and and kind of the region in general, um, they're they're in trouble. <laughs> they're they're kind of in trouble, and I, yeah. I think that the U.S. is taking advantage of the situation. I, I, I agree. With that. I think the United States, in some ways, their position is unreasonable. So, Rouhani announced this. Uh, this decision by the the regime a year after so it was a year ago that the Trump administration withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement so the United States withdrew from the agreement saying it was a bad deal yet we still demanded that Iran abide by the agreement even though the United States is no longer party to this right. and the United States is now forcing so I think as of May 1st or something we are now no longer giving waivers to any country to buy Iranian oil mm -hmm. which is going to cripple the Iranian it's brilliant yeah but <laughs> so here's the thing the United States could get trapped by this so we're saying to Iran you can't do anything you can't sell any oil it's essentially a position of regime change there's no diplomatic solution for Iran there's nothing they can do that the United States would say okay that's that's evidence that we're willing to work with you so my fear is that even though I don't think the United States wants conflict I don't think Iran wants conflict you can get trapped by these circumstances where what is Iran's reasonable choice here? What can they do short of trying to resume their nuclear program? Right. And I, I can't, if I'm Iran, I can't really blame them for trying to do that because the United States is playing such hardball. I, I really think the U.S. position here is a bit unreasonable. If you take a, I, would, I just finished teaching us U.S. foreign policy class and you're like untangling the causality of these things or the, like, yeah. the timeline is really hard to do. <laughs> but just from like a strict, from like a classic realist perspective, this idea that states, that countries are rational, that they're self-interested and they're worried about their own security, right? They want to survive. Then you're, you're right. At some point, if you're not, careful the US's approach takes all the other options off where if if you are you know if if it is regime change or nothing then the 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 deterrent to develop nuclear weapons goes out the window at some point you're like well I'm I'm screwed right I'm going to I'm going to the US is going to oust us one way or another we might as well try mm -hmm. to develop some nuclear weapons to defend ourselves to prevent our prevent that from happening so uh, it's it's where yeah I mean I'm not I'm not trying to defend the Iran regime by any yeah. means, but but it's where, it, you know, if you're not careful how you go about this can actually push Iran to the place that you're wanting to prevent them going. To. And the goal of the United States is to prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon. Right. So if that's your goal, you have to be careful about how you pursue that. That's assuming yeah. that that is their goal. Iran. Is there, no. Oh, the United, the United States. It could be regime point. change. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, e right. even if it's it, the end, the the end game may be regime change. But prior to that. Couldn't it easily be as conceivable that you're trying to get Iran to act irrationally in the sense that we're not necessarily part of the deal that they're now involved in and the Europeans are going to 
take the brunt, I would imagine, of any sort of reaction to this, or Israel or anyone in, in the Middle East at that point, um, and make them culpable for their own actions. I, uh, it's, Which it's, then would justify the use of correct. force against that regime. Exactly. Oh, that's World War One all over again, Nick. Mm, sorry. The other interesting, Gotta play the classics. Yeah. <laughs> So we need to move on. But the other thing to think about is that it's not getting a ton of press in the United States, but Russia, China, and most of Europe is blaming the United States for this situation. Nah. They're saying that it's the United States that is, is raising the tension there. They're the ones that are creating an impetus for Iran to pursue a nuclear weapon again. Uh, we're not hearing that here, but it is an indictment of U.S. policy. Yeah. All right, let's talk Facebook. <laughs> All right. So Facebook announced last Thursday that they were banning a grab bag of users, including right-leaning YouTube personality Paul Watson, alt-right political activist Laura Loomer, Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, and our favorite Alex Jones, and his InfoWar media outlet. Facebook released a statement noting, quote, We've always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate, regardless of ideology, unquote. Unless it's ISIS. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Go right, on. yeah. Uh, this prompted outrage from uh, not just the media figures and outlets who have been banned, but prominent conservative politicians, including Trump, Newt Gingrich, and Ted Cruz. Trump quickly reassured his followers on Twitter that he was, quote, continuing to monitor the censorship of American citizens on social media platforms. This is the United States of America, and we have what's known as freedom of speech, all caps. Uh, Trump then spent Friday night and most of Saturday defending far-right activists banned from Facebook and Twitter, as well as retweeting some Islamophobic content, which is sort of a normal Saturday for him, right? Uh, well, there was a whole bunch of it. Wasn't it like 50 different people? It was people crazy. Was oh, it was so much. Yeah. Uh, well, it's tempting to ignore his tweets, uh, given everything else that's going on. Trump was retweeting some pretty extreme far-right voices. The issue also brings up the question of free speech and how we interpret speech in the era of social media. Phil, what's your reactions to all this developments? All these developments. Uh, you know, I haven't had as much time to think about this as I as I wish I I had. I, I this is another one of those issues where I can sort of talk myself, you know, both directions on this. Um, there's part of me that thinks this is not, you know, free speech. Yes, there is freedom of speech, protect, you know, but but you're protected from the government, not protected from Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. If Facebook wants to ban you, then they can ban you. Um, at the same time, there's also the, the sort of ubiquity of, of social media platforms means that I, they almost take on like, a, I, I don't know, like the, the, this this um, public institution type, Correct. type mm -hmm. role in, yeah. in society in a way that... <laughs> Uh, that means it's a little different than just, you know, what can the guy down on the corner, you know, say or do. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, go, I really, I, I really wrestle with this. I, re I struggle with, with um, how, how to handle this. I mean, I think in the end, we also have to, I think the other thing that people have to keep in mind is that Facebook is a business, right? They're doing what they are trying to make money. And, and I think we forget that, which is why we end up putting all sorts of crazy personal information on there that they then sell to everyone. But that's also their goal here. So they're following, you know, public pressure on, on issues as well. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I, there's, you know, there's a public good element to this, right? Again, if, if you're inciting, so some of the limits on free speech that do exist have to do with, you know, if you're inciting uh, public, uh, you know, if you yelled fire in a in a in an auditorium, you you incite public panic in ways that that are that are banned. This is all in, in some way its own form of public panic, right? When you're like putting crazy information out there or false information, 
and I, I, it just feels like something that we haven't wrestled with from a legal perspective yet. And it feels like it's going to be an important area to deal with in the in the coming years. I, I don't know where I fall, though. Mm-hmm. Nick, you like free speech. Generally, I do. And you hate <laughs> social media. I do. So point number one, if you're getting your information from social media and you're following any of these people on the right or the left, you deserve what you get and you're a fucking idiot. Point two, um, <laughs> um, this is, if you think that this was an even keel decision on the part of Facebook, you're out of your fucking mind. Louis Farrakhan should have been gone years ago, mm-hmm. considering the rhetoric that he's put out there. You're ta- we're talking about anti-Semitism as a, a huge problem in, in American culture now. He is He's the kingpin of anti-Semitic rhetoric and, and action. So to think that you know this is some that the people that are on this list are equitable to him is ridiculous and he was the only one there from from uh, the, the you know that is considered you know left leaning mm-hmm. which is ridiculous to begin with he's just a nutcase um the other point is as much as i i, I agree it is it is a a business but at the same time you now have government entities that are putting publicly important information out on these platforms um i think the 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 biggest thing they're putting out um emergency information during natural disasters or or you know events like that to inform people of you know important events or information that they need to survive at that point you cross the line into being a public institution so now we have a borderline public institution being run by private citizens who are negating the voices of other private citizens based on their political leanings or something that they interpret to be harmful to someone else mm-hmm. which realistically that's a matter of opinion too, especially if you're talking about the people on this particular list. I don't agree with any of them. I think they're all nutcases, but <laughs> you've given people a platform to put their most basic kind of id feelings out there, and you think this isn't going to happen, and because it doesn't fit with your proclivities, you're now going to stop that? It's, it's, a, it's a drop of the bucket, right? There's so much of, there's so much hate. You talk about anti-Semitism. I mean, that's all, a lot of what Twitter is, right? It's, that's, that's all it is. Right, so so Facebook <laughs> and Twitter, are they're going to ban a handful of individuals. This isn't going to, I mean, I, maybe it's a token gesture. I think to Phil's point, this is mar- largely a reflection of movement against Alex Jones, right? To say, like, that that ilk has to be removed. But the other thing that strikes me about this is that none of these individuals who are commenting on this really believe in free speech. Trump's response is not that we need more speech. It's that you shouldn't ban these guys, that uh, you know, instead you should ban the New York Times and NBC. Right. And right. that's equally problematic, right? You, yes. I, I don't know how you do this with a private company. I think Facebook and Twitter. You dismantle it. Well, they're not, they're, they're not public utilities yet, right? I mean, that's the thing. I, I totally get that argument. But you have to think about the implication of saying that they're public utilities. They're, they're these, these have broader implications. So given that, I'm just reluctant to start regulating them. I, I sound I like Tom to Cavanaugh. Of, <laughs> well, I was trying to think of like what's the what's the closest analogy to this, and I, I, I mean, I. The only thing I can come up with are are like uh, television networks, right? Ooh. Which which have but but they're they are to some extent regulated but, but the regulations but not, has decreased right i mean now that there's much right. less regulation right if fox news decides they want to ban certain voices from their from their channel yeah. then they're allowed to do that if msnbc decides they want to ban certain voices from their channel they're allowed to do that 
Um, and so I, I, but I mean, the, the argument could be made that that is also problematic, right? That, that that's part of what's feeding this, this, this crisis. Right. The other part the point that I wanted to throw out is that I saw somebody making the argument and I, I don't know how accurate this is, but I thought it was an interesting way to think of this is that Trump is spending a, a huge amount of money already. And that part of his campaign moving forward is to spend a lot of money on uh, social media in his reelection campaign to target especially seniors, right? So people over the age of, I, I imagine, you know, over the age of 55, but particularly over the age of, you know, in, the, in their 60s and 70s. Um, it's a core part of his base. It's, it's part of like a big, you know, this growth in Facebook and, and whatnot. And as we have found out on this podcast, Facebook has all sorts of new regulations trying to limit political speech and what's yeah. allowed and what's not allowed. And, and there were one of the arguments was that what Trump is, is doing essentially in teeing up this fight is to try to set up a, a situation in which Facebook can't be critical of or limit the sorts of ads or the targeting that they want to do in the in the coming election. And that, that seems uh, that seems um that seems like that's certainly possible to me. That this is it's conspiratorial, but that would also benefit <laughs> Russia if they want to, and I'm assuming they do want to continue to engage in social media to impact the elections, right? Uh, Only if dumb people listen to it. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. We need more <clears throat> civic education. We need more all and a thoughtful debate, not more Facebook. Also, no. go like our Facebook page. Absolutely. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Make sure you take our poll on Twitter. Which, the, have you looked at the results yet, Nick? No, I haven't. The no live show is winning. <laughs> <laughs> is it really? Yes. <laughs> Fuckers. All right, next topic. So, uh, Iran isn't the only foreign policy issue facing the, the president. Trump, as he has been forced to confront challenges from North Korea, China, and Venezuela, all in the span of a few days. North Korea tested another missile. Trade talks with China are on the rocks. And the crisis in Venezuela is escalating. The convergence of events leaves Trump and his top advisors with a series of decisions to make that could draw in the U.S. Uh, U.S. military, reshape the economy, or further strain diplomatic ties. In Venezuela, embattled President Nicolas Maduro is clinging to power despite street protests and withering U.S. sanctions. There were rumors last week that Maduro would flee the country. While this never happened, there are many signs that his hold on power is weakening. Phil, all these foreign policy challenges hitting at once reminds me of those street performers who spin plates on all those wooden sticks. You know, they get them up in the air and they're spinning around. It's it's complicated. Um, Grew up in like the 20s? Yeah. (laughs) This is is good entertainment, Nick. (laughs) So, Phil, do all the plates, can can the U.S. keep all the plates spinning at once? Um... Yeah, I mean, I suppose, yeah, but I don't know that they should. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, this, I, I don't. I, the Venezuela situation is actually more concerning to me than the Iran situation. It, it seems, if I had to place a bet on, you know, six months from now, where are we more likely to be involved militarily? Uh, Venezuela would be my bet over Interesting. Iran. Over Iran, okay. Over Iran. Um, I, that, I, they're just. I, but I, all of that to say, I, I, I don't, I don't know what to say about mm-hmm. it. I, I feel like that. Um, I, I don't think that the U.S. I'm, I'm not an isolationist, which is why I'm sort of pause in the way I'm saying this. I think the U.S. Ha- has an important role to play in global politics. I, I think this is the sort of role that the U.S. has played in the past, that has not always been 
great, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this idea of of the kind of meddling, like not not playing sort of an international leadership role, but but sort of dipping our fingers in all of these places. That that's what concerns me. I, the the sort of amount of pressure we're putting on Venezuela. As I step back and I look at Venezuela, I think is Venezuela in crisis? Absolutely. Are is this a humanitarian disaster? What's happening there? Yes. Does that mean that the U.S. should be involving itself militarily? No, absolutely not. And so that that's where I, I it's a little strange to me the the fascination of Trump, who is a, an isolationist in in many ways. His fascination with Venezuela is is a little strange and an anti-interventionist too right i mean he he does not like all of these military operations all over the world even though his national security advisor does right um the the china thing is a is a a disaster of his own making in many ways i mean he you know the stuff that he's you can directly show like you can look in the last week uh you can tie dips in the stock market to things he's tweeted about china and trade talks and sanctions and whatnot now uh, you could assume that he's this brilliant strategist right and he's he's playing he's playing crazy to to increase his bargaining power with china I'm skeptical of that explanation. <laughs> anyway, I'll yeah. Stop there. No, let's. Nick, is it, can we keep the plate spinning? I don't know, man. They've had they got a lot of plates in the air right now. <laughs> they seem to be able to just kind of. I don't know if it's necessarily like someone holding plates as much as kind of a blob that kind of expands out and the plates just kind of land on there and they just kind of move around a little bit. But um, the plates wouldn't break on the blob, right? right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's very it's a soft landing. It's a soft landing. <laughs> um, Venezuela worries me. I, I, I'm kind of with you, Cheryl. Um, I, I personally don't think that <clears throat> there will be military intervention from the U.S., but at the same time, this seems like a very classic kind of Cold War theater. All proxy you war. Have yeah. So many. You have uh, Russian, quote-unquote, intelligence agents and, and support staff there, uh, interests from China, um, a dictator who's literally running over his own people in the streets. Uh, it's bad. It's really, really bad. Um, I, I feel like that's a more immediate threat. But um, in, in you know, over the past week, Trump is, has threatened to increase tariffs on on Chinese goods from ten to twenty five percent. I think it's supposed to happen on Friday. Um, that's extremely concerning as well. Um, I. I I don't know. Either either nothing's going to happen or we're going to have a weird confluence of very, very bad events very, very quickly. And I haven't really decided what that's going to be. I would feel a lot better if Trump had some sense of foreign policy ideology, if there was a doctrine there. But his transactional nature means that I don't have any clue what he's really looking for. And we know that uh, Bolton is a hawk, right? Bolton thinks that you solve all of these crises with conflict, Venezuela, Iran. Like uh, Pompeo was talking about uh, engaging in military operations against North Korea before he came in to be into the administration. So you have those two hawks. You have an acting Secretary of Defense who has no voice. Uh, I, I this is where you really need some sort of intellectual heft in the office of the presidency. Somebody saying, "This is how I understand foreign policy." I, you know, I can stand up to one of my advisors. I, I don't know how this is all going to play out. I would say I think there's, I would suggest there's more likelihood of conflict in Iran than Venezuela. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's minor military operations in both, mm-hmm. uh, which is is really bad. 
What, so here, here's a, yeah. a different take on this. What, what if you had to place bets on one of two scenarios? Uh, scenario A is that this sort of boom in international sort of uh, uh, brinksmanship with Venezuela, with Iran. Uh, scenario A is that that is happening because Trump is in crisis and he's trying to divert attention. So Trump is saying, hey, look over here, look over here. Scenario B is that there's a inter, there's a domestic crisis happening. And so people... Um, like Bolton are using this opportunity while people aren't paying attention to sort of push their agenda. Wh which of those scenarios do you think is it meant to distract or is it happening like as a, like we don't want people to see it. We can get away with this right now because people are so focused on uh, taxes and Mueller. I take B all week and twice on Sunday. It's, it's really? Bolton, right? I mean, it is yeah. to me, that's a, I don't think Trump, I really think you're right. Trump's an isolationist. He doesn't like these foreign conflicts, but Bolton and Pompeo do. And they really think they can solve. These are neoconservatives. They think you solve problems around the world through the exercise of American military power. And I think they're seizing on all of the Christ, all of the chaos domestically to, to push Trump to say, this is what you do, you've got to do. Let's look tough. Uh, and Trump likes looking tough. He just doesn't like using military troops. I, I don't know, that, that scares me. I think B is the answer, so, but it terrifies me. <laughs> so do you think Bolton and Pompeo want people to be paying attention to this or not? Like, are they wanting this? Or, like, would you be... Do you think Bolton's going to Trump and saying, hey, do this, it'll distract? Or do you think they're let it saying, you go focus on your domestic stuff, and then behind the scenes, they're just getting this done? I think it's got to be the second. No, I, I don't yeah. really think they give a shit what the public thinks about this. I think this is something that they've wanted to do for decades at this point. And if you push, the, if you push things along to a certain point, then you're trapped by where you're at. Mm -hmm. So eventually, let's say Iran, <laughs> you know, the United States has escalated the crisis in Iran. If Iran does something, if, if the Revolutionary Guard carries out some minor attack against U.S. troops in Iraq... That's the justification they need for the American public getting on board, right? You rally around the flag. So I, I, my guess is that Pompeo and Bolton push this, knowing that eventually something happens, and then everybody gets on board with their hawkish do, philosophy. Do you think that's effective? So let's say there's an attack by Iranian, you know, uh, whatever, Revolutionary Guard on some American troops somewhere. I think in a lot of times, a lot of years, that would be effective at rallying people's support for war. I wonder if we're still too close to Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, hell, we're still there. No, right? I don't think I, so. I still think there's a lot of people who, in that moment, would would still say we're like we're not about to get bogged down in another war based on this. Uh, you think it would work? I, yeah, Nick, go ahead. Uh, no, no I, I I think it's I think it depends on the type of the response. If it's a, I, it can't be a large scale, you know, Iraq war ground invasion. It has to be a you know, Clinton mid nineties, you know, cruise missiles, jet fighters, kind of Afghanistan conflict where, you know, there are no troops on the ground, there's no real loss of life, and it's easily you can extricate yourself very easily. Um, if it turns into anything more than that, no, the public is not going to support that. We we don't have the will to do that at this point. I, I don't think it takes much to turn the public in a hawkish direction. And that's my fear is that they can it could be something small. I mean, even think about like when Assad used chemical weapons on his own people, right? The, the American public wanted a military response there, and I think if there was anything against U.S. troops, oh, I, I just that 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 concerns me. I think you can push 
something along far enough where then the American public gets on board. Yeah, but we didn't do anything anyways, and he's still in power. Yeah. No, you, I know. You only I, have I so much time. You have a very yeah. you have a very finite amount of time to blow something up. Yeah. And if if you don't have the result that that uh, you want within a few months, it's it's not worth doing from a public perspective. You know what might help this conversation? Discussion but, of Game of Thrones. Hell yeah. <laughs> okay, before we go there, I just want to jump back because I just saw this to a yeah. previous topic. I just saw on Twitter, I was looking at Twitter, that John Yu, just who we talked about earlier, yeah. who had expansive view of the presidential power, just basically was just quoted as, as saying that when the president essentially states like blanket um, executive privilege, that's probably going too far. Oh, really? Yeah. So even when John Yu is saying that that's maybe too expansive of you of the presidency, that's you. That's pretty bad. That's really bad. When you've lost John Yu, ah. yeah, yeah, there's not much left. So. All right, talk yeah. about your dragon. Game awesome. of Thrones. All right, time, time, time. Talk Games of Thrones. <laughs> so if you listened last week, you know that over the next few weeks, in celebration of the final season and the final episodes of Game of Thrones, we're going to explore what political science can teach us about the battle for the Iron Throne. Today, we're going to examine whether the uh, examine the future prospects of Daenerys, House of of House Targaryen, the Breaker of Chains, and Mother of Dragons. Into her full lineage. It was too long, Nick. Oh, it is sorry. so long. Um, so no, just. <laughs> shorter one not just whether she would be a uh, she will win the battle for the iron throne but the deeper question of whether she would be a good ruler over the course of the show she's proven to be a true revolutionary a leader who can win the support of the masses yet political science scholars have found that good revolutionaries don't always make for good leaders they often build what political scientists call personalist dictatorships political system where ultimate power is concentrated in their hands and their hands alone and then they use that power to repress repress political opponents and wage war abroad sounds lovely i know <laughs> phil you're not a game of thrones fan but you do study comparative politics which has much to say about revolutionaries why don't you start by telling us what we know or what political scientists know about why good revolutionaries don't make for good leaders then nick and i can weigh in on denarius prospects for winning the throne and being a good leader butchering her butchering her name too Daenerys? How do you say it? That's what I said. Oh, okay. Daenerys. Daenerys. Sorry. <laughs> I just I just want to make fun of you. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Danny. Danny. Yeah. So, first of all, I should ask a clarifying question. No. I, I assume this is not a democracy that she's trying to overthrow and take over. Democracy no. does not exist. No. Okay. No. Right. She, she so. has ambitions for, not I wouldn't say a democracy, but a better system, right? No. No. She wants to break the chains. <laughs> she wants to end slavery. She's the mother of dragons, yes. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We should also point out that if you haven't seen last week's episode, major spoilers. So yeah. leave for the next five minutes. Sorry. You can't <laughs> be part of this. Go. All right. So so knowing nothing about Game of Thrones, here's here's what I what I will say. Yes, oftentimes this is the path that happens. A, a, a sort of a, a strong... Uh, especially a sort of a charismatic person who kind of embodies a revolution, um, who takes over after a revolution, uh, oftentimes has a hard time giving up power. They don't often end up being, sometimes they do, but oftentimes they don't end up being uh, particularly fair or, or good rulers. Now, it doesn't mean that they're bad people. So I, I, I just finished teaching. It's finals week for me. And I just finished a semester on African politics. And we talked a lot about the second half of the 20th century and African dictators and this idea of neo-patrimonialism, personal rule. You had revolutionaries that in the 60s, when their countries get independence in Africa, that take over. And a lot of times 
they're really dynamic, smart, charismatic, well-intentioned people. You get like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. You have these leaders who have lots of promise. But then they get into power and they want to achieve those things that they've been promising, right? The, the, the things that the revolution was about. And in order to achieve those things, you need to use your power. Yes. You have to like, and, and so there is this temptation and this is where you get political science gets into like rational choice stuff as well. You can explain why a person who's well-intentioned, who wants the best for their country, who believes in freedoms and whatnot might end up limiting them because in order to achieve democracy and economic growth and all of that stuff, you have to be in power. And in order to be in power, you have to keep other people from ousting you from power. And so what is well intentioned often ends up going really badly. And so, you know, in the Africa example, you end up with the, this era of, of, of African politics where people are in power for 30, 40 years. I'll shut up now and you can talk about elves. I think this, <laughs> this is elves? the case with Mao, who's a fantastic revolutionary, Fidel Castro, a lot of people, Nick, right? This is, she would be awful. Yes, right? they were, they were fantastic terrible revolutionaries who realistically killed millions upon millions of people in their quest to affect change and realistically she's done the same yes, thing as yes. much as she's you know freed slaves on a, another continent and and changed the system she's also butchered people by the thousands burned people alive dragon um, burned them fathers and sons together yeah. so the family couldn't uh, um, oppose her uh, and then she she finds you know other leaders. John being obviously the the main one who can who can challenge her for supremacy, and she doesn't know what to do with it. So you see that kind of change in 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 thought process where not only is you know her her original standpoint of regardless of what her intentions were, she was pretty terrible to a lot of people. She's also unstable now and clearly does not like anyone challenging her ability to affect the change that she's been wanting to affect for her entire life. On top of the fact that they're inbred and they're insane. So that's 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 the thing well, too. Surprise. Her, <laughs> Surprise, Phil. Her relationship with John is fascinating for me because because he is the kind of guy that you think might be a good leader. He's restrained he doesn't want the position. So he might be somebody who could be a true philosopher king kind of leader. Uh, and she doesn't want anything to do with that. The other thing that I was thinking about this week as we were talking about this topic is it was Tyrion. Uh, I don't know if it was this season or previous series, a season. He wanted her to talk about her legacy, who would take over if she were to be killed. Ooh, and she lost her and shit. She, she didn't want any of that. Right. And that's classic dictator behavior where you are the one who can make the change. Who can, and you, I think they authentically believe it. It's not just for power's sake, but they are the only. They believe they're the only ones who can make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Nobody else can do it. So let's not talk about uh, the plan for after you, right? Because that's you can't think about it. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that um, the when you go back to when historians talk about the greatest presidents, there's a lot of things that made George Washington a good president. But the thing, the like the big thing that that they really point to was the fact that he went away that he stepped down and and we take that for granted now but in that era again not no democracy before and he's he's he is the leader of this revolution to do this and say yep other people can do this just as well i'm that that's what was remarkable about it um and and you know we we take it for granted but that's a hard thing to do yes. right if you if you've overthrown a dictatorial regime or a you know a, a monarchy to say i'm not going to take those powers myself is is hard to do 
She's no George Washington. She is not. No. She has dragons. Too. Although, I will say, like, I mean, she, I think she is good. She's been a force for good. I mean, she's ended slavery. She's she's targeted repressive regimes. Those are all good developments. Yeah, but she Dictators has... Dictators do good things sometimes. Yeah, but you don't do good things by murdering your opponents. That's generally not a good thing. What did, what did Mao say that, you know, if you're going to make an omelet, sometimes you got to crack some eggs, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, a few so, million eggs. So... Fucking piece of shit. Um, um, she... <sighs> She, the only times that she has been good is when people have restrained her from doing something bad, which nobody seems to talk about. I, she's never been a great leader. She's gotten lucky a few times. She's been, you know, part of this weird kind of prophetical kind of storyline that they have, but she's not a good leader. She's had good advisors who have tamped down her, her, her worst impulses, but again, feeding people to dragons and you know locking them in mm -hmm. vaults and and just burning droves of people alive I, it's just and i'm assuming she's going to kill every single person in that city now do you think she wins the iron throne no i think she dies Ooh. i think she has to die i like it would be it would just be it would be dumb. I, I, don't, I don't know who sits on I'm, I'm voting Sansa at this point. Yeah. She's the best. I don't Nick. like her. <laughs> so I have a question. Yes. Please. So I'm, I'm curious about this world in which there are people named uh, Daenerys and Tyrion and Sansa and stuff like that. <laughs> Tyrion? Tyrion. Tyrion. Yeah, he's the best. He's the dwarf. Oh, yeah. also, there are also Johns and Kevins? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. No. Well, oh, yeah, they have like Neds too. Like, uh, yeah, but his name's Eddard. Why would you call your kid Ned then? Yeah. 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 No. It's... There are Neds and Kevins and Tyrions. It <laughs> doesn't make sense. And the dragon names are unpronounceable. Well, those are Is her brothers. Is the dragons names. named Drogon? Yes, that's a terrible name. For <laughs> yeah, he he clearly just phoned that in when when George R. R. Martin was writing that one. Oh, this is good, Nick. Oh, it's fun. One more episode to go. No, well, we have two left, right? No, no. Yeah, two. I'm two sorry, left, yeah. two more. So two more of these discussions. Yes. I didn't like that episode that no. much. I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty lazy, sloppy writing. But that's the discussion for another. I thought this was a good one. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, if you guys like that discussion, or, you know, the more substantive ones that we talk about, uh, follow us on Twitter at Paul. Definitely take the poll that we put up there about uh, live events that we're potentially doing. Uh, Facebook at Bars... Wait. Twitter at Paul. Facebook at Politics. Uh Beers that we try. Uh, untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. Podcast. Uh, Spotify. iTunes. SoundCloud. Stitcher. Google Play Music. Most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then Predict It. Uh, if you weren't here at the beginning of the podcast, we are partnered with Predict It, which is a uh, real money political prediction market uh, where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barso Politics listeners, uh, if you open up a new account, we receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So open up a $20 account. Predict It will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Just use the promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash Paul 20 uh, and check it out. Lots of fun. Anything else, guys? No, this is a fun one. Lots of people are dying this week. I can't wait. On Game of Thrones. <laughs> On Game of Thrones. Not, Everything. Not everybody else is going to be fine. Yeah, don't take that out of context. This isn't related, related to our foreign policy discussion. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.